Welcome to Uproar in the Studio, your weekly Chinese blockbuster podcast. I'm Noah. I'm Reza. I'm Andrew. And this is the Jackie Chan post-Rush Hour 3 season. If you like the show and can afford it, we would really appreciate it if you would contribute to our Patreon at patreon.com slash uproar in the studio. This week we're growing ever closer to uh, to the present day with Night of Shadows, released in 2019. We're going to give a synopsis for it, but if you want to watch it without spoilers, listen to the show afterwards. We've only got one segment this week, but it's a good one. We're talking about the movie with three-time guest Larson DeFiori, a visiting assistant professor in the Religious Studies Department at Brown University. Here's our conversation, starting with a synopsis. Released in February 2019, The Night of Shadows Between Yin and Yang is a fantasy action comedy loosely based on the Chinese classic Strange Stories from a Chinese Studio by Pu Songling. Drawing inspiration from the anthology, Jackie Chan stars as Pu Songling, an author of short stories Moonlighting as a Monster Hunter. When a young detective in Songling's village starts investigating crimes committed by monsters, he becomes Pu Songling's monster hunting student. When a powerful demon begins abducting young girls in the village, Pu Songling must devise a scheme to banish the evil spirit and return the girls home. Farting monsters, gimmick fights, and a CGI budget stretch to its breaking point, this is The Night of Shadows. You think this movie would have been uh, better or worse before the world melted? <laughs> uh, <laughs> it, it, I guess the question is, in what way would it have been better or worse? Um, I think... I don't know. Well, this was a... Uh, this we, is a movie this... they could make now. This is a movie, because if you look at the blooper reel, so much yeah. is green screen. Nothing is real. Yeah. <laughs> right, everybody could have recorded their part at home on their own green screen. <laughs> Honestly, that would have been so impressive. If <laughs> if they made this movie over Zoom, this would be an incredible movie. It would be a triumph. This would be a movie that would <laughs> in the future. But they spent, like, millions of dollars making this. That's a real movie. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe we should back up to, like, general impressions of this, even though maybe they're obvious by this point already. <laughs> yeah, I think so. <laughs> From that statement. <laughs> so, how how did we all get through this? <laughs> I think that's a reasonable question. Did, uh, were there... Uh... I, f- I figured we made somebody watch this, so I had to really, like, watch it. <laughs> like, I felt like... Uh, you know, I felt really bad for you, Larson, that we uh, asked you to watch this one. I'm sorry. Oh, no, it was, you know, it was entertaining, I have to say. I mean, the CGI was not great, to put it blunt, but, but <laughs> you know, there was something kind of fun about it. And there's a, a way, I, I mean, I don't know, the sort of bad special effects sometimes goes with the territory when you're looking at uh, the kind of. I mean, I this is a 2019 low, movie, well, just to point yeah. out. <laughs> I guess it were a lower budget film, maybe. Um, yeah. But, you know, it was it, it was kind of creative. I could see maybe what they were trying to do, uh, even if it didn't quite work out as, uh, as beautifully as might have been intended. <laughs> there were a lot of cool ideas. Yeah. Yes. Execution-wise, a little sloppy. How maybe. popular are, like, the Pu Songling, how popular is that canon? 
Oh, as far as I can tell, it is super popular. Now, just to note, I'm not an expert on it. There are people who've done, um, you know, a lot of substantial research on Fu Songling's work. Um, but from what I can tell, just looking around and, and reading about it, not only was it really popular uh, before now, but it's also like a major source of uh, media for pop culture nowadays. And in fact, even the particular story that we're looking at in this that has to do with Xiaoqing, um, has is one or Xiaoqian is this um, Nia Xiaoqian is one of the stories that's inspired a number of other movies, most notably the Chinese ghost story that came out in the 80s, the mm -hmm. Hong Kong film. I also stumbled across there's another film that came out just in the last two years, a, a couple that came out about Hu Songling's uh, writings, uh, where he's also encountering different ghosts through mirrors and things like that. So he seems to be having also kind of a resurgence. I mean, it's it's interesting though because this movie seems so derivative of so many movies that have come out in the past few years like Larson I mentioned Monster Hunt over the over email and like those movies it, it's the only series that has two entries in the top 10 highest grossing and <laughs> this came out the timing of this coming out is just about right for them to see those movies and be like we can quickly make a new one of these like really I mean, quickly they have a wooba this movie does have a wooba they <laughs> have a wooba with pink hair that flies in the air it doesn't make any noise yeah i don't know but uh, like do, do you think some of the slow pacing in this movie is an attempt to match those classic stories um probably not because the stories are actually very short and very quick as a from a reading perspective Okay, so it's all their fault. <laughs> so it's wrong. They did it wrong. I think they tried to focus on that second, the, like, love story bit. And, like, it didn't seem particularly connected, you know? That kind of lost me a little bit. But if it was fully focused on that, I thought it would have worked better. That was the better story, but it was the second story. Right. It was the B-plot, but that's where the, yeah. all the emotional payoffs happened. And, like, cooler string work. Is is Pusong Lang ever a character in his own stories, or is that fully an invention of the movies? Uh, well, he has his own voice. In the, a lot of the characters that he talks about are relatives of his or friends of his who he hears things <laughs> from. So he kind of he's sort of there in the stories, but he's never really like at least the ones that I'm. He doesn't show himself. This happened to me. It's always I heard this from so and so, or this was a cousin of mine who did this, or I had this friend who had this happen. He's not himself going and capturing ghosts or something like that. But actually, also, it's funny you mentioned that the love story is the more interesting one because that's that's the one from the from Pusolling's writing. That's mm, the story, mm. although it's a little bit changed up. The um the the Chinese ghost story, the '80s one that I mentioned, is actually much closer to the original story because that involves this scholar. Most of Pusolling's writing involved these young scholars who go off and encounter ghosts and fox spirits and other creatures, right? So a scholar goes to this abandoned temple. He stays overnight. He encounters this ghost who's going around and uh, basically draining energy and killing people who stay in the temple. And to protect himself, he goes and he stays with, he, he has to seek the support of this Taoist exorcist whose name is Yan Shixia, who is in this movie, the figure who's the one who's in love. So it's kind of been switched up. The scholar's been totally removed. Um, now the Taoist priest has become the love interest of the ghost. Um, which, interestingly, is what happened in the remake of the Chinese ghost story in 2011. They did that, and they kind of 
they created a love tension between the Taoist and the the ghost early on in the story. Oh, so there's um, no there's no romantic element to the original. In the original, the romance is between the ghost and the scholar, and in fact, what ends up happening is she's being coerced into stealing the life from people who stay in the temple by this demon. And uh, the, the Taoist helps to kill the demon, and he gives a protective bag to the scholar who leaves, and the ghost follows him. And then the ghost kind of informs him that she was coerced into doing this, and she actually is thankful to him because he's instrumental in, in helping her in a way. And he ends up digging up her bones, which are in a, a, a place that is causing her great pain, and he buries them in his own backyard, and they end up actually getting married, and she becomes human, and they have children afterwards. So it's actually a happy ending, a very happy ending in the original story. They're, they're not left in the gate. <laughs> yeah. No, the gate doesn't show up in the, yeah, in the original story. Is there, so is there anything in this movie that's actually, like, anywhere remotely faithful to Dork? <laughs> uh, I mean... It seemed to me there were kind of hints about the book, but it wasn't really trying very hard to be very close to the original story. I mean, other than putting Pu Songling in as the original, the main character, and then having some of the characters follow the names of characters in his stories. Um, it was kind of a rough catch. Are there bumbling cops in the Pu Songling stories? <laughs> not, not, not exactly. I mean, there's, there's magistrates who mess things up and all kinds of uh, strange stories, uh, but not... Not quite what we're seeing in the movie. <laughs> this seems to be more of a borrowing from Tintin. The Tintin's got <laughs> yeah. the twin detectives. This one has the triplets. They got to one up everyone. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> if this is so, if you'd say that it was like you know loosely inspired by these stories, is there anything that makes it into the movie? Just because there's so much of this stuff that just feels so incongruous with the rest <laughs> of the film, is there anything in here that feels like it actually is just them trying to make a nod to the book, like? The part where he pretends to be like a a nobleman with a camel and <laughs> stuff like that. Damian King for some reason. Yeah, if that's like pulled <laughs> directly from a story that they wanted to make a reference to. Yeah, I was trying to look for things like that, and none, nothing came to mind as I was seeing. <laughs> uh, Did you catch which part of China they were in in this movie? Because they kept saying like something, but my dub was so bad. It really seemed to me like it was kind of a, a, a made-up environment. I mean, you look at his his studio at the beginning, it's those kind of classic Mountains of the Immortals type of environment up above the clouds and they have to cross a bridge over there. It doesn't look like it's a place that really exists at all. No, nobody's living on these tops of mountains to, that they have to climb up to get to each time. Well, cer certainly not somebody who has kids coming by and trying to sell books. <laughs> yeah. I, I was going to say, he's sort of the Patreon monster hunter. <laughs> he goes out and does his thing, and then he begs for five cents. Well, he's got so many powers that he doesn't, like, use enough, you know? Like, he's got the, the little monster that resets memory. I feel like he could just do that for... You just make unlimited money. <laughs> Hey, you didn't pay me. What I paid you <laughs> uses the uh, Men in Black. He does use that tactic. I, I couldn't tell if they were stealing from Men in Black in that moment or from like a Jedi mind trick. But... Yeah, that did seem like Men in Black. Yeah, it's certainly a borrowed moment. <laughs> so Larson, the the way that he actually you know goes about his stuff, the thing that he has with the book where he 
you know, casts a spell through writing uh, a rune and then sending it to them. Is that something that is present in the book or is that like a mechanic entirely invented by uh, the spell? Well, so this is something I, I thought was actually maybe the, the one nod it makes that is kind of maybe cute, I would say, or kind of entertaining <laughs> or charming. Um, that sort of activity, so the binding of spirits or exercising of spirits is something that is a real part of Taoist exorcism practice, and it occurs quite frequently as a theme in his books, where there are sort of these Taoist exorcists who are called in to chase away demons or ghosts or so forth that are coming and causing problems for people. And some of the stuff that they do is very reminiscent of that. The sort of images in the text that he writes in the air that you see very briefly is kind of hinting at these talismans. We actually see the talismans shows up, those those strips of yellow paper with the red writing on them. Mm -hmm. These were, you know, magical seals. We see them a lot in movies, right? Because they're very, a very interesting, very vivid uh, marker. But those are those are real things that people actually did and still do. You can still go and get talismans drawn up for you that can serve protective functions or can exercise demons or can help you score a better score on your test. Um, and you you can, if you find, oftentimes you'll find like little stalls where there are Taoist priests near temples who, you know, sometimes will just write these things up, especially around uh, New Year's time. People will do these. I think they've come up in basically every movie we've talked with you about. Um, Forbidden Kingdom has Jackie Chan trying to write some of those. Detective Chinatown has them. <laughs> Pretty much any movie that touches on Taoism, I guess, will... It's it's a quick and easy thing to incorporate. Yeah, I think it's I think it's the most visible representation. Um, or, you know, the easiest way to to present, hey, look, we're doing an exorcism. Here's these these magical things we're using. And some of the chants that they they do, uh, you know, when they're summoning these, they're creating, they're, they're making their spells happening, or they're summoning the talismans, or they're doing different things, are reminiscent of things in Taoist texts. So there's a couple places where, like, the Tao Te Ching shows up, um, or things like that. They aren't, you know, as far as I could tell, it wasn't real chants, it wasn't real invocations, but they were kind of enough to hint at, so that you would think, and there's a couple other places where they nod at some traditional culture, um, which is actually a feature of Pu Songling's original book. Um, but, like, one thing I noticed is, that little sort of out of the blue musical number where Jackie Chan is sort of waking up and all of the monsters in his, his house are dancing around and he starts singing. He throws in like a line from the Analects in there, a line from the Analects, <laughs> which seems really funny, but this is also kind of a nod to the original book because the, the interesting thing about Pu Song Ling was he was this really, he's kind of a tragic scholar figure. At that time in China, to get a really good job, you had to pass this battery of incredibly difficult exams that focused on basically knowing the core classics of Chinese culture. And, and so, so you this, was, this was the 1700s? That yeah, this is in the, he was born in 1640, uh, just before the start of the Qing dynasty, and he dies in, in the early 1700s. So he's kind of, it's the, it's the late 1600s, early 1700s. And this was the way that he trained, and he spent most of his life working for this, but he never passed the main exams. Uh, he spent <laughs> his whole life like, studying for this, but he never got there until finally he also wrote a lot of essays and other things, and he was recognized for that. And he was given an honorary degree at the age of 74 or 75, which is really depressing when you think about it. <laughs> yeah. uh, and it in fact, his book wasn't even this book, The Strange Tales from a Chinese Studio, as it's, it's translated, the Liao Jiri wasn't even published until after his death. But it seems to have been kind of like a work of love that he did most of his career. 
And it's notable because it's not written in vernacular Chinese. It's written in, in classical Chinese, in the literary Chinese of the period, because, of course, he was a very educated person. And so it was very much written for a scholarly audience. And he throws in all these little like asides to things like that, where he's making all of these puns about the classics that you can't even really understand in translation because uh, it, it misses some of the nuance that was he was trying to throw in there originally. So little things like that. I wasn't I wasn't sure if they were actually trying to do that in the movie, but I thought, you know, maybe if we read it generously, they were trying to uh, to nod in that direction, which is kind of cool. I was also reading that there was some sort of political content to some of these stories in a possibly subtle way. Do you think any of that might have translated just in terms of reference to the movie? Yeah, I'm not... I'm not sure. I'm not sure what I'd even identify as, apart from the bumbling, you know, police officers, <laughs> of what the political content per se would be. The biggest, actually, the most interesting thing about Pu Songling's writing, and this did come across in the film. I mean, this isn't like a human political perspective, but the politics of humans interacting with the supernatural world mm. and what the relationships are. So, some of Pu Songling's stories are. Uh, really depict, I think, what would be maybe a more traditional attitude towards dealing with monsters, ghosts, and especially fox spirits, uh, who are really prominent in his writing, which is, these are these supernatural creatures which can cause damage to the human world, and so therefore, the right approach is to to fight with them. Um, so like the one of the most famous ones, which has also been made into a number of movies, is called Painted Skin. This actually, this comes up with the Monster Hunt movies, because the, the theme of the Painted Skin uh, is that there's, a, of course, a scholar, who runs into this woman, uh, mm. falls in love with her, brings her home, and then one day he discovers, he comes home without you know, telling her, which she doesn't notice, and he sees through the window that she's actually this monster, which has stretched out a human skin on the bed and is painting the skin to make sure it looks just right. And then this leads to kind of a, this particular story is very tragic because it ends up with her coming, or it, it becomes tragic. She comes in and tries to kill him by literally ripping his heart out and eating it, which sounds horrible. But they find somebody who's able to, his wife is then able to help save him and bring him back to life with the help of kind of this magical Taoist beggar figure. Uh, so it does kind of end okay. Uh, but that's the, the usual sort of approach is that, oh, these supernatural beings are extremely dangerous and we really need to be careful in our interactions with them. But he also has a lot of other stories where the main characters encounter these fox spirits, they fall in love, they get married, uh, or, or ghosts too, you know, this happens with them. They fall in love, they get married, and they have a happy life. Um, sometimes they actually have to deal with, they have to hide it from other people, and they have to deal with this kind of um, uh, sort of negative attitude from other people. But for them personally, it's something that, that remains a positive effect. And there's even stories where, like, one of them is kind of interesting. There's this, again, kind of a scholar official type figure, a, a local magistrate who wants to rent out his garden, and he rents it out without knowing it to a family of foxes of fox spirits. Mm -hmm. And they move in and they invite him over and they, you know, serve him good food and he, you know, they're, they're very friendly with everybody in the neighborhood, but he realizes, oh, they're fox spirits, therefore they're bad. And so he goes and he, he basically burns down their house and he kills almost all of them. And then the foxes have to take the burns on it. So there's, there's like this whole range of stories in there where it's like, what exactly should the relationship with human beings in the supernatural world be? And Pusan Ling is really ambivalent about it. Some of the stories, it's like, we can get along just fine. Some of them, it's like, the monsters are bad. Some of it's the humans are really bad. And actually, I thought that Monster Hunt captured this a little bit better, even though I think that the, the Night of Shadows, um, the, the one we we're mostly talking about, tried to touch on this and did capture it a little bit with the romance at the end. 
So I was sort of confused here because in Monster Hunt, it's quite clear that human-shaped demons are in skins and the the monsters are just, you know, monsters that haven't put on skins. But here are the two witch-like characters. Are they ghosts or are they also demons similar to the ones that Jackie collects and uses as, let's say, slaves? But this is this is also where it gets complicated what the the definition of a monster is in the classical literature. So technically in the original story, there's a demon who is the one who's controlling Chaoqing, who's a ghost. Mm-hmm. And that demon is making her do all these horrible things. But in this story it's a little bit less clear because apparently she's a human who then falls in love with a, a monster who a, a, a Yao. A Yao is it's a little bit broader than monster in Chinese. It, it can mean anything from like a, a fallen divinity that has kind of ended up in the world that is, has taken on certain characteristics to an animal spirit, an animal that is uh, through some sort of form of cultivation has transformed itself into a more powerful and human-like being. So Yao is a very kind of broad term. It seems like she's become kind of merged with that in the story. So her, in, in the film, her position is kind of ambivalent. In the original, she's clearly a ghost. Mm, okay. Um, and also uh, the the second and a half of this movie, just reading it sort of from a Western perspective, seems very much like an Orpheus story. Is that uh, is there a Chinese source that the demon world rescue follows? <laughs> well, there's a lot of I, I'm trying to think in the um, I mean there are some stories of people getting rescued from the demon world. I think the most famous is or almost getting rescued, is the story of the spider's thread, which is a Buddhist parable about this guy who gets thrown down into the Buddhist underworld, and in all his life he did only one good deed. And he's suffering down there, and basically the Buddha takes compassion on him and lowers down a single thread, or there's this single spider's thread to help him out, because his one good deed was he saved the life of a spider. Hmm. And uh, he, he grabs hold of the, the thread, and he's going to get pulled up out of the underworld, and he's really happy about this, but then there are all these other people who see him getting pulled out and they say, hey, save us too. And they all pile on. And of course, the thread is too weak to carry all of them and it breaks. Um, so there, there are some stories that are kind of like that. And in, in Pu Songling's own writing, there's a lot of sort of adventures into the underworld where there are people who try to trick the various gods there to get, uh, like there's one, one guy who can remember his previous uh, rebirths. And he, uh, they're supposed to drink this tea or this wine that makes them forget about uh, what their past life was. He basically dumps it on the ground when uh, when Yama, the king of the underworld, is not looking. Of course, this doesn't turn out really well for him, and he gets sent back first as a horse, and then I think as a dog, and then as a snake. And each time he has a progressively worse experience, and he tries to keep like cheating his way out of it by, you know, and get reincarnated as a human being. And finally, he finds a way to cheat the system by uh, sort of accidentally leaning under the wheels of a, a cart uh, as a snake and dying that way. And then he gets, it gets written off as an accident. Um, he's able to get sent back as a human being after this. Um, so there are stories where there's another guy who goes to the underworld and he's, there's a bureaucratic error. Because, of course, you know, the, the Chinese conceptions of heaven and of hell at this point were all of a giant bureaucracy. <laughs> so he shows up. The paper, there's a mess up in the paperwork. And um, basically what happens in this story is that people are supposed to be covered with the skins of whatever animal they're supposed to be reincarnated as. And the paperwork says he's supposed to be reincarnated as a sheep. And so they get out the sheepskin and they're throwing it on him. 
And then all of a sudden somebody pops up and says, oh, no, wait, there's a little note here that says that he saved somebody else's life. So he gets to be reincarnated as a human. And they all go, oh, no. So they start trying to rip the skin off, but they can't take all of it off. And so then he when he's reborn, he has a birthmark on his shoulder that has this thick white hair on it. Um, so that's the way the story goes. Uh, Noah, you were describing the yeah. sort of demon realm in this movie in kind of well, an interesting I was, I was curious because <laughs> it's a really weird interpretation of like a demon realm just from the perspective of how it looks and then also the internal government system that is never really explored but does exist. And it kind of looks like, I don't know if you're familiar with this, but it kind of looks like in Danny Phantom, the ghost zone, mm. which uh, <laughs> it's just kind of this amorphous void where things float around and demons and ghosts live and that's kind of what this was i'm wondering if that was based on anything or if it was just completely an an imagination of this movie i i'm not sure i sometimes see you know when when looking around on the internet and looking at um some modern popular novels and things like the the xianxia the immortal fantasy genre Mm -hmm. you'll see images of things like a, a ghost kingdom that are depicted in a very similar sort of way. And so I think there are some really modern conventions about, you know, that kind of like floating pagodas on rocks and things like that, that Mm -hmm. very dark kind of kingdom. That, I think that there is now a growing kind of, just like there is for, you know, uh, high fantasy with elves and dwarves and stuff coming out of Tolkien right in the West. So I think there is a visual convention for that. I don't, I can't think of a correlate per se in the old images that I can think of. Most of the depictions of the underworld particularly come out of like Buddhist conceptions where you have multiple rings and people are tortured in all kinds of horrible ways like being dumped in walks full of frying hot oil or getting their skin flayed off or all kinds of awful stuff. And there's a lot of depictions of that because there was this phase where basically to get to get converts and to get people to take their... their uh, their moral uh, well-being more seriously, there would be these sort of, um, people wrote these very elaborate depictions of or even created images of uh, the Buddhist underworld. So those we have a lot of imagery of, but they don't feature that kind of, you know, floating in the void kind of thing we see in in these images. What's Mm -hmm. interesting here, though, is that I don't know that this is necessarily a human afterlife. This seems like very much where the demons go to be dealt with, sort of. Yeah, it's very exclusive. (laughs) <laughs> yeah like a resort where you die yeah i mean there's so much infrastructure for what seems to be a mechanism for just ex- executing whoever gets sent there <laughs> right there's all the lightning torture before they're just sent off into this void is there any precedent to how mirrors are used as a gateway because i oh. thought that was kind of cool i mean yeah, it was like uh it was the execution wasn't great but like the interdimensional mirror play was fascinating so mirrors are a very interesting kind of topic in chinese mythology so there are we have artifacts of bronze mirrors dug up from tombs going way back uh into the you know the warring states period and earlier so uh the second third fourth century bc we have from tombs these sort of bronze mirrors which are basically if you take a piece of metal and you polish it enough it you know you can see a reflection in it and usually they're shaped just like the ones we see in the in the movie. They're usually round. Um, they would have kind of this, they'd often have writing on the back, and they'd have this little kind of like embossed nub on the back that you could hold on to. Sometimes they'd be put on a stand. Mirrors were an important part of, they were seen as an important um, ritual implement. So there are depictions of different divinities that use mirrors. 
Um, they played a big part in certain Taoist uh, rituals, especially those having to do with um, thunder rites, where you would use the power of these thunder divinities to basically do different types of magic, including exercising demons and so forth. Um, there's also sort of an interesting period in time where uh, we have these artifacts of mirrors that were done in a way, uh, they're bronze mirrors, so they're not transparent, but when they were assembled, they were textured in a way so that when light shines on them, they'll show whatever was inscribed on the back of the mirror. They'll just project it on the wall, which is really pretty cool. Um, and that they may have served ritual purposes. They were apparently used in diplomacy, so we even have records of them being used to, uh, for example, being sent as a gift to this kind of, who we think is maybe the first, one of these first empresses of Japan, uh, Himiko, a semi, semi-legendary, but probably uh, at least partially historical figure. They sent her like a ton of mirrors as a, a gift or to recognize. At least that's one of the stories. So mirrors are a very important artifact in, uh, in culture. And now as for them being portals into other worlds, there's also examples of that um, that are kind of interesting. Um, so I think one of the classic ones is actually in another Qing Dynasty novel in the Dream of Red Mansions. This is an actual, like one of the, it's one of the great four classics of Chinese literature. It's a little bit later, not by much, but kind of contemporaneous with the uh, Hu Song Ling's writing. Mm-hmm. Uh, in it, it features an episode where there's a young man who's given a mirror um, that has, he's, there's a, this Buddhist figure and this Taoist figure who show up and kind of represent the opportunity for enlightenment and liberation from the, wor- the world of suffering, the world of red dust, as they call it. And they give the guy a mirror. He's very sick. He's about to die. And one side of the mirror has a skull on it. And they say, pay attention to that. In other words, pay attention to your eminent death, your eminent demise, and keep that in mind. And then that will make you more serious about getting better. But the other side has the mirror itself. And when he looks into it, he sees instead this woman who's the object of his desire. And what ends up happening is he starts fantasizing about her. And eventually he just totally ignores the advice of these two figures, right? And he keeps looking in the mirror and eventually his spirit gets sucked into the mirror and these, these sort of demon figures show up and grab him with chains and haul him off. So I guess this is kind of like the movie. And that's how he died. So mirrors can play a role kind of like that. Another sort of way that people get trapped in this movie is the paintings. Is there any correlation to that? Or is that borrowing from Roald Dahl directly? <laughs> it's funny you mentioned the borrowing from Western literature, too, because the other thing I wanted to say about the mirrors for a moment is that there is a story by um, Georges-Louis Borges mm-hmm. that's all about an invasion of monsters that come through mirrors that this mythical figure, the legendary, the legendary Yellow Emperor, who is one of the five great imperial figures in ancient China, like ancient, ancient, way before recorded history China. And he has to fight off all this invasion of mirror monsters. Um, uh, but that, you know, that I don't, that's not like necessarily a real thing uh, from the Chinese. <laughs> that's a, a modern Western uh, fictional depiction. But yeah, the paintings, I think in this particular case, the way I read it in the, in the movie was that it was more about Fu Songling capturing the stories, the monsters in his book, mm. rather than them being paintings per se. And I thought that was kind of like a nod to, like, here he is, he's copying them down, he's writing them, uh, and so he's then preserving them for the future or something like that. But it's also the the young girls who are captured in the paintings as well, which right. seems like an interesting... Uh, like, his capturing of it is unambiguously a positive thing, this is unambiguously a negative thing, but the methods are the same. <laughs> yeah, well, again, remember, the, 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 the girls are sort of in this liminal space, They're, they are still considered monsters of a sort in this world. 
and again, it's complicated because I think the the, the one uh, you know she's taken on that the the I, I think it's called a yaldan I think a monster elixir which the the real monster had been cultivating that's his I'm I'm assuming it's not elaborated in it but there's this sort of fantastic idea that you know like a fox can cultivate themselves using these um, special Taoist methods and then they can become attain immortality just like human beings can they gain magical powers when they do this. And so he apparently gives that to her as a way of giving her these special powers. So that puts her in that space. And that's why they're able to do that shift at the end where he takes it back and then he's the one who dies instead. Um, so they're technically in the same category. And that's why they get sent into the end. At least that's the way I read it. Well, also, I mean, the those monster girls are capturing the 16 year olds, the, the, the mayor's daughter or whatever, the city councilor's daughter all of them that are sort of freed at the end in that one painting in that temple. Oh, yeah. That also makes me think the the Pusanling has another story, his collection, which actually involves going into a temple painting. So I think this was possibly a reference to that. Um, So in that story, there's, uh, again, two young scholars. They show up at a temple. One of them sees this attractive young woman in the painting, and he goes into the painting. He's sort of sucked into the painting. And he's supposed to be there so he can listen to the sutra, the, uh, that this, uh, this lecture that this Buddhist monk is giving. But instead, he goes off and he has a dalliance with this girl. And, uh, you know, of course, he gets himself in trouble and he almost gets kicked out of the painting when there are these, somebody goes around sort of saying, are there any humans here sort of thing? And he, he gets in trouble with that. And then the, one of the real living monks in the temple has to save him by knocking on the wall and he pops out. So that may be a reference to that story. Interesting. Yeah. There's a lot of ideas in this movie. It could like I don't know like the the source material all sounds so good. It just uh, maybe maybe there'll be a good remake of these stories. Yeah, huh? yeah, yeah. That would be a Pusongling TV series with all of the stuff. Yeah. Well, the, like there... the Jackie Chan series, but Pusongling. <laughs> well, I think there is one that was done in in China. Oh, it's well, all, all... yeah. that I actually wanted to ask as a sort of follow up to this because the reason that she the reason that they put all these girls in the painting is because they want to eat them. But then one of them says, I'm going to go down to the town so I can get some liquor, so I can like have some booze with my, my meal. So I'm wondering, I'm just wondering if it's like a, if it's part of the tradition and also you have the other monsters who are all eating together uh, with the same food that Jackie Chan's eating. Is that part of these stories? Like, do they also like have, do they need to eat food? Do they need to, do they like, are they able to get drunk? Is that like part of uh what these demons are oh yeah in in Pusangling's story they are all able they're just the same as uh, human beings in terms of their ability to eat food and, and uh interact with it they do sometimes end up eating people um that one painted skin where she eats the guy's heart very vividly eating a part of a, a human being but they more prominently actually consume the rather than the flesh of a person themselves a lot of these uh, ghosts especially and the fox spirits will consume sort of like the living energy of a person and use that to become more substantial themselves or to survive or to, to continue so it's less that they're and they do that over extended periods of time uh, a lot of the time interesting so they're sort of stealing the bodies of these girls in this movie you know in, in capturing them in the the painting but taking their life force, as they say, to keep themselves young. Sort of an Elizabeth Bathory type vibe. Yeah, that's exactly. I mean, that's that's one thing that happens. And then the other thing that will happen is that the a ghost will actually take possession of the physical body of someone who's died. This happens in several of the stories. Mm-hmm. Um, and in one of them, she actually 
takes possession of the body of this young girl who just died, and uh, she starts walking around and talking about her past life, and the parents of the girl who died, you know, they don't, they think this is weird, right? Why is her daughter suddenly talking about this stuff? And um, the ghost is really distraught because she figures that in this kind of very, I think must have been sad for the parents, but it's not just depicted in the story. She says like, uh, you know, oh, I feel horrible. I'm not as beautiful as I once was, meaning the body she's got is not as beautiful as she thought before. <laughs> so she, she basically starves herself for a week and then all of her flesh just flakes off. It peels off. And she now has a new body, which looks exactly like the way she was before. So it's, it's like some of this stuff is really creepy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this guy's prolific. Well, yeah, so, well, I hope I'm selling you on the book because it's fantastic. It's <laughs> what is it also? The movie seems to imply that the book was also illustrated. Yeah, there's a famous um, set of illustrations that were done in one of the later editions. Okay. And is. himself did not do these. No, he did not. Uh, I don't think he was an, an illustrator himself, um, but these were um, some woodblock prints that were included in one of the later printings. There's two sorts of animation in this movie. We've already talked about the PS2 looking uh, CGI, but there's also sequences of kind of really beautiful like 2D animation. Does that conform more closely to those famous woodblocks? I mean, they seem to be more in a kind of general painting tradition because the, the woodblocks are... are all black and white okay, um, yeah. and are pretty much just yeah. a single line. But there are a lot of painted, um, there are a lot of illustrations of different kinds of monsters and from different painting traditions that were a little bit more similar to the, the 2D animation. Hmm. Yeah, that, that might have been my favorite part of this movie. <laughs> I don't really want to ask about the significance of the farting demons. <laughs> yeah, the pivotal <laughs> fart, I think, is something that... <laughs> cannot go unmentioned <laughs> you know i tried to look to see if i could find some reference to that <laughs> I could not find it. maybe it's there buried somewhere obscurely it's the it's the it's the producer having fun yeah <laughs> jesus i mean also that character and the oversized baby tinkerbell character I, <laughs> right Two of the worst bits of animation in this film, I think. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think my overall sentiment on this movie is that it's largely because of the pacing. It's one of my least favorite movies of the season. Just because it, it lacks that manic Jackie energy for so much of it. Yeah, he doesn't have too much going on in this one. He just kind of lays back. I mean, he's got a few fight scenes, but... It's an interesting introduction to this you know, the series of works, because I'd never heard of these before watching this film. But I wonder how much that, like, it works as, like, I don't know if it's part of a school cu curriculum in China. Yeah, I wouldn't finish that in China, probably, because they're so popular. I don't know. What do you think, Larson? How Would people coming to this be familiar with all this stuff, likely? Or is it something that a scholar would have to go at? Uh, the impression I have is that it's something that would be commonly known. I mean, maybe people wouldn't have read every single story, but certainly some of the more famous ones have inspired a lot of uh, more recent popular culture. And I don't know if it's, I, I wouldn't be surprised if it's taught in schools. Um, it's, it would be a little difficult to read because it's not written in vernacular Chinese. Mm -hmm. um, so there, there might be selections of it that are, are, are put into like high school readers um, for classical Chinese segments. Um, that's something 
I wouldn't know, um, but you know, I wouldn't be surprised if that was the case. Uh, another question that you may, may or may not know, but are, is there something that happens like, like you know, in uh, English departments, they have modernized Chaucer sometimes? Are, are the classic Chinese texts ever modernized for younger readers? Oh yeah, actually, that that there's been some very popular sort of retranslations or renditions of the classic texts um, in new formats. It's almost, in fact, it's almost like translation. So the Chaucer example is actually a pretty good one. Classical Chinese is very different than the structure of modern Chinese. Um, and, I mean, it's still readable. You can still read it. It still uses the same characters. A lot of the characters have the same meaning. But it's just very difficult um, unless you have training. So there have been a lot of reimaginings, especially things like the very popular um, classical texts. Um, there have been a few sort of, what exactly would you call it? People who have re reimagined them or rewritten them in a new way um, who have become very popular in their work. I, and I guess like this sort of movie is something like if you've read the Pusongling during your school year, it'll play at the end of the year where they've run out of. Uh... This is your treat. <laughs> right. This is Elf during yeah. like <laughs> the Christmas uh, right before break type of movie. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, I think there's just enough in there that you would probably have like, oh, I think I, I think I know what that is. Kind of like as a <laughs> or an illusion to something. But it may be not going really deep. Yeah. Yeah. Feel bad for the kids who have to write like an essay I mean, on this. It kind of feels like if they made the Harry Potter movies all from the perspective of J.K. Rowling, this is what the movie is. Because it sounds like he's his own involvement in the stories is so minimal that having him at the center of the story really takes away from the most interesting aspects. Like in this movie, how the B plot is so much more interesting than the actual main story. I don't want to dig into J.K. Rowling. I just. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't know, I could see her rewrite the stories herself and put herself in her, you know, Harry's shoes. God. That'd be good. <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I'm good. Thanks to Larson DeFiori for watching this movie and being on the show. That's it for this episode. Our original music comes from Elliot Saltmarsh and Yehuda of Fist with a PH, and our art comes courtesy of Jay Castro. Follow us on Twitter at China Film Pod, like the Upper Run Studio Facebook page, and if you can afford it, we would really appreciate it if you would contribute to our Patreon at patreon.com slash Upper Run Studio. We are trying to buy a new guest. And if you feel like it, Wait, have some what? thoughts or suggestions, email us at Upper Run the Studio, all one word, at gmail.com. <laughs> Next week, for our last episode of the season, we'll be talking about the Iron Mask. But before we leave you this week, we just want to share some wisdom from the chairman. To read too many books is harmful. We'll see you in a week. Thank you.